I'll ask that you take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, our text will run from verse 20 to verse 32. Of course, in these weeks, it's unusual for me to ask you to turn your Bible to the New Testament, to Ephesians, because we've been in a series through Genesis chapter 1 through 11. And so I should explain a little bit why we are taking a detour from Genesis, uh, and then we'll be returning to it, Lord willing, uh, two weeks from now. Uh, and the, the reason why is actually a, a personal reason that, I, that happened to me as I was uh, considering what I would deal with next after preaching on the flood. For those of you who weren't here last Sunday, we literally had a flood warning when I preached on the flood. We were doing, well, there was a flood warning that came in earlier in the morning, and then we were, we were observing the Lord's Supper, and then suddenly a, a buzzing, a movement happened in the auditorium that had never happened since I've been here before, and that is everyone's phones went off. There was an alarm that, alarm that there was a flood warning. I thought, this is the ultimate irony. I hope you never forget that God sent a flood warning the very Sunday that we preached on the flood, that we dealt with the flood. But as you know, after uh, the, the, the account of the flood, God reminds uh, Noah and us that human beings are created in His image. And because of that, each human being possesses inherent dignity and worth, and therefore the taking of another human life, uh, the, the Bible says, God says, if, if man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's found in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. But that got me to think, be thinking, should I deal with the topic of the image of God again? And so as I was looking at a lot of different passages in the Old and New Testament, uh, the New Testament dealing with the, the doctrine that we, you and I as human beings are created in the image of God, I came across this passage here in Ephesians 4, which is what the image of God is, is pointing toward, and that is the fact that because Jesus Christ is the true image of God, as we become more like Jesus Christ, we become conformed into the image that God intended us to be, which is why what we, we read what we do in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And as I begin to drill down into this passage, my, my heart just began burdened that I, I wanted to share this with you as an answer to the question, how do we grow as Christians? How do we grow as Christians? The title of my sermon is The Dynamics of Christian Growth or How to Change. How to Change. If you were to visit my home, as uh, several of you have, one thing you'll notice is that there are a lot of plants in my house. Uh, there are plants in the living room, there are plants in the dining room, there are plants in the bedrooms, there are, I, there are probably even plants in the basement, I don't know, I haven't checked recently, there might even be plants in the attic, I, I don't know. Last count, there were 461 plants, I'm, I'm just kidding, all right, I don't know the exact count, but it's something. Some of the plants are real, and some of them are fake, and the fake plants look so real that you can't even tell looking close up. But one way to tell which are real and which are fake is if you were to stare at the ones that you thought might be fake for a really long time. And if they don't change, it's probably not real. And if you see, or if you see a plant sprouting new growth, that's a sign of life. In fact, sometimes Krista will come to me and say, Jonathan, look at this, look at this, there's new growth happening. And she's really excited, and I'm excited for her because there's new growth. I think, but when it comes to plants, when it comes to animals, when it comes to human beings, living things grow. The, how many of you 
are sixth grade or below, or you're going into sixth grade or below, raise your hand. Let me see you. you yes, okay. Don't you love it to know when, when someone says, wow, look how much you've grown. Well, maybe you don't love it so much, but, but you, you like the fact that you are growing. I remember when I was a little kid, my, my uh, mom had this uh, on the, one of the walls in her house. She had little marks that indicated how much we were growing. And I remember when my mom would measure me. I mean, when your mom measures you, do you like slump over like this? No, you straighten your back. You, you maybe stand on your tiptoes just a little bit, but hope your, hope your brothers and sisters don't notice because they will call you on it. But you want to be growing. Living things grow. But for the Christian, growth doesn't happen automatically. Growth is something which, given by God, is a process in which you and I participate. Now, to be clear, all growth is from God. It is as if God supplies the feast and invites us to eat. We didn't supply the feast. All we do is eat. Or it's as if God loads our bank account with a limitless supply of money and God invites us just to make withdrawal after withdrawal after withdrawal. We didn't put the money in the bank account. God did, but God invites us to make the withdrawals by faith. That's a little bit like Christian growth. God does the work, but we are invited to participate into in the work of growth. Here's the problem. Some of you this morning might not know how to grow spiritually. You want to grow. I mean, what Christian in here, what person who has felt the new life of Jesus Christ within them says, I don't want to grow? Everybody who is a Christian wants to grow. And your struggle maybe is how? How do I do this? Or maybe your struggle this morning is that you feel like your growth has just kind of slowed down to a snail's pace and you don't know how it can continue. Or maybe in your life, you're wondering, do I, even, do I even want to grow? Maybe this is something you're wrestling with. That's why I think this passage is so relevant to us today because it teaches us the process of Christian growth. It, it answers the question, how do we grow? So here's what we're going to see. In this passage, we're going to see the person that is at the center of Christian growth we're going to see the process of Christian growth, and then we're going to see some practical examples of how this Christian growth is worked out. We see five of them between verses 25 and 32, all right? So first of all, let's, let's look at the person of, at the center of Christian growth. The person at the center in verse 20, Paul says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. And of course, you know where I'm going to go with this. Christ is the person at the center of Christian growth. But before I get there, I want us to focus on that a conjunction, but. What, what Paul is doing here is he's presenting a contrast between a life that is not growing, a life that is not alive spiritually, and the life that you and I ought to be living. He's saying, however, whatever I described earlier is not the way that you learn to grow in Christ Jesus. And, and if, if we had read earlier, as actually we did here earlier in, the, in this, uh, the, the service, you read this description of a pre-conversion state or a person apart from Christ. And it's a, it's a really horrible description. He talks about, that he's using the word Gentiles as a word to refer to non-believers, those who have not believed in Christ. He says they, are, they walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God that, uh, because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have been 
to become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There is a blindness, there is a hardening, there is, there is a callousness that exists in the life of a person who doesn't have the life of Christ. And what Paul is saying is, you don't want to go that direction. That's the direction you used to be going. Don't go that way anymore. It's kind of like when I took driver's ed a long time ago. I don't know if they do this anymore, but they made us watch videos to scare us to death about what would happen if we didn't pay attention to the driver's ed uh, course. Uh, they would show pictures of cars smashed to bits. They would even show pictures of, of people that had been in a car accident and didn't make it. I mean, we're watching this, we're like, oh, this is terrible. What are they trying to do to us? They're trying to say, this is, don't go that direction. That, that, is, the, that is the way to destruction, and that's the way to, to death. And in the same way, Paul is saying, the way in which you lived before was a way that is totally oriented toward, toward hell. You didn't learn Christ that way. So there's, there's this contrast at the center uh, contrast between the way our lives used to be and the way our lives are to be in Christ. So, he says, this is not the way you learned Christ. Now, when he says you learned Christ, it's actually a very unusual expression here, learned Christ. Uh, all the, the commentators that I, I looked at, I'll, I'll agree on the fact that you, usually when you have the word learned, even in Greek, you expect to find some topic or subject, like you would learn mathematics or you would learn science, or grammar, or Spanish, or whatever you're learning, you expect, it, you expect the object of the learning to be a topic or a subject in school, but not a person. But here Paul presents the, the curriculum, the content, not as, a, not as like science or mathematics or history or grammar or whatever. He expresses the content as a person. And that, that tells us this. It tells us, that at the center of Christian growth is a relationship with Jesus Christ. At the center of Christian growth, if you are going to grow in your Christian life, you must understand this, and you cannot forget it, that the very essence of Christian growth is growth in a relationship, which means that growing as a Christian is not merely gaining more knowledge about Jesus, although it does involve that. But growing as a Christian means developing in your relationship with Him as a person, as a person. Now, if, if you want to understand how this works, just to think about your relationships with people and how you get to know them. I've used this illustration before, but when I first started dating Krista, I didn't know her as well as I do now. When I, I surprised her one time, she was counseling at a camp in Brevard, North Carolina, or working at a camp in Brevard, North Carolina, and I surprised her by showing up and inviting to take her out to lunch in what I thought was the fanciest restaurant in Brevard, North Carolina, which was the Twin Dragon Chinese Buffet. <laughs> and I thought, I'm, I'm being really cool, I'm being really smooth, taking her out to this fancy restaurant, and we pull up there, and she's acting happy and grateful, and we walk in there, and she orders pizza. And I learned something about Krista. I learned, well, maybe that she doesn't like Chinese buffets, but maybe the kind of Chinese buffets that are in North Carolina in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and since then, I, I began to learn, as I, I knew, but I began to know, know more and more that this, she, 
my wife is more than a set of propositions. My, my wife is more than a bundle of facts. She's a living, dynamic person. And so is, so is your spouse, or so are your brothers and sisters, so is your mother and father, your grandparents, your children, grandchildren, they're, they're persons with, with a will, with emotion, with, with feelings, and so is Jesus. He is a person, and so to grow spiritually means growing in your, in your knowledge of and understanding and relationship with that person. So let me ask you this question. If it is true, and it is, that at the center of Christian growth is a relationship with, per, with a person, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? Let's answer this question. What does it even mean to have a relationship with Jesus? Well, first of all, it means that you've got to know who He is. You've got to know who He is. Do you know who Jesus is? You've got to understand that Jesus of Nazareth was a man, a human being, who grew hungry and tired, who thirsted, who needed a place to lay His head, who when He was sitting by a well, asked a a woman, please give me something to drink, who when he hung upon the cross said, I thirst, who hung out, uh, who cried out in agony. You have to understand that Jesus was a real person, but you also need to understand in addition to the fact that uh, you're a real human being, but you also need to understand that in addition to Jesus being a human being, he was more than a human being. Because in, a, in addition to growing tired and, and thirsty and, and hungering, he also did things like this. He commanded demons to come out of people that they had been, these demons had been infesting, showing that he had supernatural authority. And he also touched people who were sick and he healed them. And he touched people who were dead and raised them. And he shouted into the tomb of a man who was dead, and he came out. I mean, this is no mere human. This is God. You need, if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, you need to understand that he, who he is, he is Jesus of Nazareth, and he is God himself. But also, if you're going to have a relationship with Jesus, that is prerequisite to growing spiritually, you need not only to understand who he is, but what he did. Because who He is cannot be disconnected from what He did. Because Jesus did not come merely to heal the sick, nor to raise the dead, nor to wipe tears away from the grieving faces of people. Jesus came primarily to die on a cross and rise again. And so you need to, you need to know Jesus and who He is and, and what He did. And that's why in our text, when it says, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, simply Paul is simply doing this. He's reminding the, the Ephesian readers, this is what I've been saying to you. Jesus is the crucified and risen Son of God, Son of Man. And if you have a, a growing relationship with Him, you're going to have to know that. Now, I'm answering the question, what does it mean to have a personal relationship with Jesus? And I've already said it means knowing who He is and what He's done. But there is another part of this without which who He is and what He's done would mean nothing. And it is this. Having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ means knowing who He is and what He has done. And that who He is and what He's done is for you. This, this is the whole emphasis of the book of Ephesians. 
This is why about nine times in the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul continually, continually says, in him, in Christ, through Christ Jesus, in him. Why? What he's doing here is saying, Jesus' life is for you. Jesus' death was for you. Jesus' resurrection is for you. In other words, you don't separate who Jesus is in his person from the fact that he is for you. Now, the, the, the term for this, the fact that what Jesus has done is for you, and that is having a relationship with Jesus means you are so tightly connected with him that Jesus' victory becomes your victory. Jesus' death is like counted for your death. The word for that is union with Christ. Now, it has to be this way. Why, why would God leave heaven to come to earth? Is it because there was something here that he needed to make him more God? Why would he do that? No, he didn't do that for himself. He did it for us. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, have, why would he have died? It couldn't be because he was weak, because he was eternally strong. And it couldn't be because he was sinful, because he had no sin. So why would he have died on a cross? The only conclusion to reach is that he did it for you and me. And, and why would he rise again? The only conclusion to reach is that he was doing it for you and me. Th this, is the, this is the mystery of the gospel. That God would come to this earth and that he would submit himself to the death of the cross and rise again for sinners. Now, I want to bore a little more deeply into this. Why then did Jesus have to die for us? Why did he die for us? Well, the answer is found, it's, it's suggested in our text, and that is in verse 22, you see, to put off your old self, and in verse 24, to put on the new self. And I, I'm going to get to this a little bit later, but this is implying that there was something so messed up about who I was that it wasn't enough for just for me to reform a little bit. It wasn't enough for me to make some new resolutions. I had to die. That's how bad things are. And I had to come back alive again. It'd be kind of like this. Now, just so you know, as far as I remember, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior before I even knew how to read. Like, I remember, my memory of this goes like this. I walked into a, a bedroom, and I saw my mom kneeling at the bed with my older brother and older sister, and I asked them what they were doing, and they said they were praying to God. And in my, my little memory, this is the best I remember, is that my mom took that moment, and because I, I said, oh, I want to pray too. I just wanted to get involved in this. And my mom took that moment to tell me that God loved me, I was a sinner, and I needed to trust in Jesus. That's all I remember. Now, I, I may be wrong here, but I, I don't know that I'd committed any big crimes by the age of four. I don't know that I had done anything that had, would land me in jail or cause someone to look at me and say, that is just the scum of the earth. I don't know. But I will tell you this. I had, I had all the ingredients in that little four or five-year-old heart for the worst moral disaster ever. In fact, I was literally bent on hell. How do you know? Because I know a little bit about my own heart now. And I could say this, 
that there is an old Jonathan and that old Jonathan is proud, insecure, self-righteous, critical of other people, willing to be dishonest, lustful, hateful, hard-hearted, and thinking all these things are the way to get, for, to get forward. That's, the, that's, the deceitful, that's correct of the deceitful desires. In other words, there's, a, there's an old Jonathan and what he thought what he thought would bring him forward in life, what he thought would validate his existence was all these kinds of things. And, and that old Jonathan, it's not that I could, you, could just, you could just put him in a mold and, and, and force him to do the right thing. He needed to die. It's as if, I, it's as if this old Jonathan was, was in a prison wearing prison clothes, and it, it, sooner or later he was going to stand before the judge, and the judge was going to have to say, he was going to stand before the judge and plead guilty before his condemnation. But, but Jesus steps forward and says, I'll plead guilty on behalf of him so that now everything he did wrong, I suffer for, and everything I did right, he gets. That's what it means for Jesus to be for me. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means that Jesus' victory becomes my victory, and the death I should have died was the death he died on the cross, which is why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So to have a relationship with Christ is to admit at some point in your life that what you truly needed was not mere moral renovation or not mere self-fulfillment, but what you truly needed was to be so utterly undone, and you needed a new birth. That's what so shocked Nicodemus when Jesus talked to him in John chapter 3. Nicodemus said, his, the question in his mind, although he wasn't willing to say it, was how can I be part of the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. Here is this righteous man. He's thinking, how in the world could all the good things I've done be counted as nothing? Oh, because the righteousness of man, that is our attempts to validate, justify ourselves in the sight of God. They're all going the wrong way. The, what, the picture they're going to end up with is the picture, spiritually speaking, of the, the, gru, the gruesome driver's ed video. It's all the wrong direction. But praise the Lord, I have a, I have a new life in Christ. So what does it mean to, what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus? It means to believe that his death gets counted as my death, so his life gets counted as my life. It would, maybe I could illustrate it this way, this idea of union with Christ. And I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. And it is this. Suppose I was going to play a, a soccer game. It was a big tournament, and whoever won this tournament would, be, would, would hold the trophy and be the victors. And, and I'm going to get out of the, on the field with my team, and as soon as I step onto the field, I trip and fall and sprain my ankle. Bummer. I'm on the bench for the rest of the game. And my team goes out there, and they sweat, and they get bloodied, and they, and they, they score goals, and it's a, it's a long, nail-biting fight, but my team wins. And I'm sitting there on the sidelines, and I wish I could be in the game, but I can't, and I'm cheering them on. And when, that, when, the, when the buzzer beeps, when the whistle blows, they, 
they go out on the, on the field and the trophy is offered to them and then they come over to me and they pick me up to the middle of the field. They carry me over. I can't even walk. And they say, put your hand on the trophy. You're a victor. I say, I can't do that. I didn't play a bit. I didn't even kick the ball. I didn't even make a pass. They said, you're wearing our jersey. Your victory is our victory. And our victory is your victory. That's what it means to have union with Christ not, not to be irreverent, but if you're wearing his jersey, as it were, you're on his team. Oh, infinitely more than that, the way God sees Christ is the way God sees you now, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. And knowing, the, knowing that, the person is at the center of this Christian growth, knowing that, unless you know that, you can't grow spiritually. Unless you take that, that truth and plant it deep within you. It's the gospel. Unless you plant that truth deep within you, you cannot grow spiritually. Why? Paul says in verse 20, 21, assuming that you've heard about him. I can't exhort you to grow unless you have taken Jesus into your heart because he is, because to grow is to have a relationship with Jesus. Now, that is the person. Christian growth happens in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we can get even more practical and talk about the process, the process flowing from that person we read in 20, verses 22 through 24, and I've already alluded to that a little bit, but in this, in this section of our text, Paul gives a, a picture um, that he, he actually uses two metaphors, and he mixes these two metaphors, which in I know literature and English classes, they tell you don't mix metaphors, but the mixing of these metaphors is actually a very powerful concoction to help us understand the process of Christian growth flowing from the person of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll read it to you. He says, assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Again, let's remind ourselves what is the truth in Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and the fact that that is for you, union with Christ. Verse 22 to put off, skip to verse 23, to be renewed, verse 24, to put on. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What Paul is saying is this, the same patterns at work in identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. I had an old self that had to go away, and Jesus gives me a new self. The same, the same pattern ought to be at work throughout the rest of your life so that you continually learn to put off those habits and attitudes and lifestyle associated with your non-Christ way of living, the things that were so rotten and so bad they had to be completely done away with, you put those away and you become renewed in the spirit of your mind, I'll talk about that in just a moment, and you put on different lifestyle, a different way of living, that is a resurrection type of living, a, a new life type of living. Now, remember I was talking about, and I I hope you don't mind me personalizing this so much. I think it's helpful for me to explain this from my perspective, saying there was an a, a old Jonathan Threlfall that had to go away, right? I'm going to do that again. I understand as a Christian man, as a man who believes in Jesus, that there was, there was a self, I'll call it the old Jonathan, that was irretrievably lost. 
He had to be judged. He had to go away. But Jesus bore that judgment, and now he's given a new life. But here's what I tend to do. Now, I know that self-centeredness belongs to that yucky past. I know that. I know that sexual lust belongs to that ugly past. I know that anger belongs to that ugly past. But here's what I tend to do. I walk over to that corpse that was me. I pick up a stinky garment. I said, I think I'll put this on. I think I'll wear this again. Why? Well, because I have a hard time believing that I, that I don't need that to get ahead. Because I used to do that so much. Cutting other people down to make myself feel good, make me feel good about myself. Gossiping about other people behind their back because it kind of in, inflates my self-esteem. Bending the truth because it helps me avoid consequences. And I begin to put those garments on myself. Do you do that? There's, there's an old lifestyle. There, there is a destructive lifestyle. Yeah it, yeah, it was judged at the cross, but you go back to it. And you pick up that old stinky, corpse-smelling piece of garment and you put it back on. And what Paul is saying is this. That's not you anymore. That's not who you are. You are a new person. Not self-created. That's how I thought I had to be before. But you have been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Oh, before, I thought that, I thought that righteousness and righteousness is just a way of kind of validating yourself, like seeking, seeking a validation, seeking to justify your existence. You thought that righteousness came by lying. You thought righteousness came even by attending church. You thought righteousness came by any other means. But you know what? It's not, that's not the way it comes. It's a gift of God. It's something created by God. And that way, of, that way of doing religion, that way of doing whatever it might be, that's, that's not part of you anymore. So th- there's a twofold process that takes place. There's a, a putting off and a putting on. Now, that twofold process is empowered by something. Before I I talk about the power for the process, I just want to say this. I want to make this as visual as I can for you. If you were to look in the mirror tomorrow morning and you saw some moss growing on your forehead, would you be like, oh, I've got moss growing on my forehead. That's cool. You'd be like, what is that doing there? Oh, my goodness. What if you looked in the mirror and you saw a mushroom growing out of your ear? Honey, look at this. Can you take this mushroom out of my ear? That's really weird. It's really bad. That's sick. What if there was mildew on your nose? What if there was a, like a spider's web like coming from your chin to your shoulder? Like, what in the world? Why? Why? Because that's not who you are. Whatever that belongs to is something molding, something stinking, something corrupt. That's the meaning of the word in verse uh, 22. Your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. See, this kind of change that you need in your life is a change that requires you and, and that calls upon you to see that kind of living as that's, that belongs to another self that died, and it doesn't belong to me anymore. 
Now, that's the process. It's a putting off and a putting on. But what is the power for this process? You see this in verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that is this. You have to think differently. You have to think in a new way. Your mind has to change about these behaviors, and your mind has to change about the new behaviors that God wants you to put on. How is your mind going to change? Well, think about the way you used to think, or that you would think apart from Christ. You would think this, in order to get ahead, I must be dishonest. In order to feel important, I have to cut other people down. In order to be accepted, I have to compromise my integrity. In order to be free from guilt, I have to atone for my own flaws. If things are going well, then God must be happy with me. Way to go me. If things are going poorly, then God must not care about me. Boo, God. That's the way, that you, would, that's, that's the way you used to think. Now, in Jesus Christ, you think totally differently. You think, I'm accepted. I'm embraced. I'm welcomed. I'm loved. I am in Christ. That's a new way of thinking. And what does that do? It cuts the feet out from under all the other way of thinking that I've got to get ahead. I've got to do this. To, I've got to lie to get ahead. I've got to cheat to validate myself. I've got to uh, accumulate riches to feel significant. I've got to make sure I have uh, lots of friends to feel satisfied. You don't need to think that way anymore. Why? Because you've got all the acceptance that you never need in Jesus Christ. See, the, the change of mind takes the gospel deep into your heart and says, I am as fully accepted as Jesus is. My friends, that will change you. They'll transform you. They'll break the, the chain of, of bondage that you feel to sin, that you feel to the, the need for someone to look at you and say, oh, I think you're cool, I think you're okay, I, I like you. Why? You don't need that anymore because you have it in Jesus. Now, how in the world are you going to remember in such a powerful way that actually translates into your actions such, like, almost unbelievably good news? How are you going to remember that? I forget it every day. Why? Because I'm always reminded of my stupidity, foolishness, sin, laziness, I'm always reminded of that. How in the world am I, going to, am I going to have a constant reminder that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me? Well, the answer that is not in this section of the text, but is woven throughout the whole fabric of the text of Ephesians, is that the Holy Spirit is the one who reminds you of this. I want to read a few verses to you in verse 16 that tells us that He has blessed you in the Beloved. In other words, your acceptance is unchanging. In verse, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance, which means the Holy Spirit tells you your future is secure. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the Spirit makes you understand what are the riches of your glorious inheritance. In other words, the Spirit teaches you that your status in God's sight is totally righteous and glorious. 
And in chapter 3, verses 19, Paul prays that the Spirit of God would strengthen his readers so that they would be able to comprehend with all the saints the measureless dimensions of the love of Christ. That Spirit says to you, His love for you is incalculable. The thing... The process of of thinking must be this. I was crucified with Christ. I'm a new person. That kind of behavior doesn't belong to me. Why? Because I'm fully accepted in Jesus Christ. Where's the power for that change? Who's going to remind you of that? It's the Holy Spirit living within you that tells you over and over again, you belong to Jesus Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus teaches us, especially in several chapters in the latter part of the Gospel of John, is to take the things of Christ and declare them to you. In other words, the Spirit of God within you says, everything that Jesus is, belongs to Jesus, it belongs to you too. I would not have the courage to remind myself of such an audacious message, but the Spirit of God within me does. That's why when you sin as a believer, you never feel comfortable, not for long, Because God's spirit is within you is saying, that's not who you are. It's not who you are. That's why when you go through a trial as a believer and you're tempted to think, maybe God is ignoring me, maybe he's far off, the spirit of God says, but you are a child of God and of a child, then an heir. And and that means that this trial right now is God's Yes, mysterious way, but God's way in making you more like Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit of God does. And even when you don't know how to pray because the pain is so great, the Spirit of God groans with groanings that cannot be uttered. He knows how to pray for you. See, this is the work of the Spirit of God in your life, reminding you that you are a son or daughter of God. That's the power, the true power for change. There's a Puritan author, a Puritan British 17th century, John Owen, wrote an entire book on the, the practice of killing sin. It's called The Mortification of Sin. It's a great title, The Mortification of Sin. One of the famous quotes that come from that book is, Be killing sin or it be killing you. But he also says in this book, It is hating sin as sin, not just as a painful or disturbing habit and comprehending the love of Christ as revealed in the cross that lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. In other words, you can't kill your sin properly unless you know how much Jesus loves you. It ultimately is not going to be the wrath of God that will drive you to righteousness, but the love of God the acceptance of God in you and Jesus Christ. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, and it is the love of God for us that motivates us to continual holiness and righteousness. And finally, and briefly here, what does this look like practically? We've looked at the person at the center of Christian growth as Jesus Christ and who He is, what He's done, and the fact that it is for you if you trust in Jesus Christ. We looked at the process, and it involves recognizing that this is not who I am, so I put it aside. I take on practices of righteousness, and I do so by renewing my mind, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who tells me that I belong to God, that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. But what does this look like practically? Well, I won't spend a long time with this, because uh, these, are, these are very clear. You could read them on your own, but Paul deals with five 
areas uh, and just practical examples of how this might look. What about in the area of lying? My friend, do you have a hard time telling the truth? Is there someone right now that you've lied to? And the re- I, I guarantee you, the reason you lied to them was because you thought it would benefit you in some way. Otherwise, you wouldn't have lied. But there was something in your heart that you wanted more than telling the truth and that I was looking good in front of someone else or sparing yourself from embarrassment or judgment in some way. And what Paul is saying is this. You don't need to do that anymore. So put it aside. Scrape that moss off your forehead. Rip the mushroom out of your ear. Take the spider web right off of your body. Why? That's not you anymore. Instead, tell the truth. And the reason for that is that, and Paul's talking specifically in a, in a context of a local church, we are members one of another. In, in, in other words, this, because you're in Jesus Christ, He's given you a family, brothers and sisters. You want to erode that unity that Jesus has given you by injecting dishonesty into it? No, that's not who you are. Replace lying with the truth. What about anger? Some of you are angry right now. Oh, it's not like you're just yelling and screaming in the moment. That would be pretty chaotic, but you're angry. And you're angry because there's something that was done to you. And you go to bed angry. Paul says, that's not who you are. Later on, and these are very closely connected in verses 31 and 32, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If you just remember this, you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ for far more wrong than you ever could have, than anyone ever could have dished out on you. And thinking more about the forgiveness that God has offered you because of Jesus' death for you on the cross will dislodge the anger in your life. You can control it in other ways, but the only way that will bring about permanent change is if the Holy Spirit applies the gospel more deeply into your heart. What about stealing? Are you stealing? Taking things that aren't yours. Why? Because you thought you'd be happier with it. Paul says this, let him who steal, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Just think about what Jesus did for you. Jesus is yours. What could you possibly need that you don't have in Christ? So what could you possibly take from someone else that would satisfy you? So instead of being a taker, be a giver. You see what the, how the change of thinking because of the gospel, it transforms people from being takers into being givers. What about corrupting talk coming out of your mouths? Some of you if you drive home after a church service, the car is filled with critical comments about so-and-so and this, that person, and have this and that happened, and, and, and your home is just filled with negativity and, and, and this or that. And Paul says, no more of that. That's not who you are. That's like mildew growing on your lips. Scrape it off. Put on a new garment of righteousness. Instead of speaking corrupting thought, corrupting words toward people. Rather, you can give life-giving words, healing words to people. 
Why? It's because of the deep gospel work that's going on in your heart. Here's the thing that we need to consider, my friends. Are we growing? If you're a Christian, you want to grow. What would happen if, what would happen to all of us if we took this message deep within? First of all, for those who were unconverted, it would convert them. It would change them. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time. I don't mean necessarily the first time in your life. I mean maybe it is dawning upon your heart for the first time. And you thought that what it meant to be a Christian was to follow certain rules, follow a certain routine, or have an occasional rush of emotion. And you're realizing it's not all about that. It's about, about having a relationship with Jesus Christ in which you understand that everything he did gets applied to your account and everything evil that you did gets applied to his account. That's what it means to be a Christian. My friend, you can be that today by trusting in Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, what's, what, how ought we to respond? There should be deep gospel-informed change going on in our lives. Someone has compared... Christian change, gospel change, deep change to the way that you might blast a big, huge boulder out of the side of a mountain to create a tunnel through. You could take the hammer of rules and you can wail away at that, that big boulder all you want. And it's going to create a lot of noise and it's going to be really impressive and it might crack a few stones off here and there, but it's not going to move the boulder. Or you could take a drill and you can go all the way down to the heart of that boulder and you could put a stick of dynamite down there and you can blow it to smithereens. That's what the gospel does in our hearts. Sometimes it's a slow process to be sure. It is a slow process to be sure, but it is a pro process that makes us more and more conformed into the image of of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to sing a song as a, as a response, but it would be good for us to take a moment to respond right now in our hearts. Th this, is, this is such a relevant message. It, there's no one that it doesn't apply to because if you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, that is someone who's trusting in Jesus, you need to, and you can. And if you are, I know you want to grow. And the way you're going to grow is by getting this message about Jesus, who he is and what he's done deeper into your heart so that it just it transforms you from the inside out. I pray that you let that happen. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we seek to respond to your word, would you please change us? I pray that there would be a great moving of your spirit in our hearts that would, in, Father, a, a joyful but powerful and, yes, unexpected way, remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it, how that applies to our lives. Father, like we prayed earlier this morning, you never disappoint, but you always wonderfully surprise my Father, would you please wonderfully surprise us in the way we respond to this? And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.